Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Each and every week, it's my pleasure to invite a guest to share with me their thoughts about the weekly Torah reading, what is known in Hebrew as the Parashah. The Torah, the five books of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch, is divided into 54 weekly readings. I won't go into the uh, intricacies of the Hebrew calendar um, at the moment, but we read a particular section each and every week, beginning in uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and every year begin again. This week, our Torah portion is entitled Chaye Sarah. It begins with Genesis 23.1 and continues through Genesis 25:18. It's the continuation of the story of the family of Abraham that began in Genesis 12. Let me give you an overview of the parasha before I introduce my guest. Chaye Sarah is translated as the life of Sarah, But the Torah portion interestingly begins with the death of Sarah. She dies at the age of 127 and is buried in what's called in the Hebrew the Machpelah cave, the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, which Abraham purchases from Ephron the Hittite for 400 shekels of silver. The Torah portion then leaves the matriarch Sarah and tells us the story of Abraham's search for a son, a bride for his son, Isaac. Abraham's servant, Eliezer, is sent laden with gifts to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. At the village well, Eliezer asks God for a sign. When the maidens of the village come to the well, he will ask for some water to drink, The women who will offer to give his camels to drink as well as he shall be the one destined for his master's son. Rebecca, the daughter of Abraham's nephew Bituel, appears at the well and passes the test. Eliezer is invited to his home where they repeat the story of the day's event. Rebecca returns with Eliezer to the land of Canaan where they encounter Isaac walking in the field in the evening. Isaac marries Rebekah, the text says, and loves her, and is comforted over the loss of his mother. The Torah portion ends in a very strange way. Abraham takes a new wife called Keturah which Jewish tradition sometimes associates with his concubine, Hagar, and he fathers six additional sons. But Isaac remains his designated heir. Abraham dies at 175 and is buried beside Sarah by his two elder sons, Isaac and Ishmael, who makes a return to the Torah. 
having been expelled just a few chapters earlier. Well, this is a Torah portion that begins with the death of Sarah and concludes with the death of Abraham. And in between are some interesting episodes for us to unpack. My guest this morning is Rabbi Neil Borovitz, who was elected Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Avodat Shalom in River Edge, New Jersey, in June of 2013, after serving that synagogue as a rabbi for 25 years. Prior to assuming his position in River Edge in the summer of 1988, Rabbi Borowitz served as Hillel Rabbi and instructor in biblical and religious studies at the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. He served as executive director of the Labor Zionist Alliance of the United States and as rabbi of Union Temple in Brooklyn, New York. Rabbi Borowitz is a native of Cleveland, Ohio, and received his BA from Vanderbilt University and was ordained as a rabbi at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He also received an honorary doctorate from that same institution in 2000. He is an active leader in community affairs. He has been a member of the Bergen County Interfaith Brotherhood Sisterhood Committee for over a quarter of the century. It is a great pleasure to re-welcome Rabbi Neil Borovitz to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you again, Steve. Rabbi Borovitz has recently returned from a journey in Italy, visiting ancient Jewish sites and modern Jewish synagogues. But this morning, we're going to talk about antiquity, of which Italy knows a lot of. But our antiquity begins with this interesting notion of Sarah dying and the episode of Abraham purchasing a burial plot for her. And so I wonder if we could begin with you sharing with our listeners how you understand the importance of this episode, the purchasing of land from Abimelech. I think it's it's really important in on two different levels. First of all, uh, one of the questions that comes up is if God gave Abraham this land twelve chapters earlier, uh, so why does he have to buy it? You know that uh, this is the the land that God has given him. Uh, but there are other occupants there. And so we're operating on a couple of different levels. Uh, So Abraham's purchase of of the cave of Machpelah is the first act of purchasing the land from other inhabitants. Uh, And I think that's very important. And it has uh, some contemporary uh, parallels that I'd like to uh, just mention to start off with. The land uh, in the 20th century, uh, the League of Nations acknowledged the right uh, to uh, of the Jewish people to establish a Jewish home in Palestine, uh, with the issuance of the Balfour Declaration that was incorporated into the Peace of Paris, ending World War One. So, for our listeners who may not know the history as well as Rabbi Borowitz, in 1917, Lord Balfour then. Um, 
foreign secretary, foreign minister uh, of England, um, offered a letter uh, indicating that the British government looked with kindness on the establishment of a homeland in Palestine for the Jewish people. There are a number of clauses in the document, and you certainly are invited to look up the Balfour Declaration. It was included in the Paris Peace Agreement, which ended World War I um, and is known as the Agreement of Paris 1919. Um, and that sets the foundation for the establishment of the State of Israel 75 years ago in 1948 at the UN. Correct. Thank you. And so that's, but yet at the same time, uh, as Jewish resettlement in, uh, in the land of Israel began uh, 120 years ago, even before uh, the Balfour Declaration, uh, the Jewish community, worldwide Jewish community, uh, actually purchased the land from people who had title to it under the Ottoman Empire. So there's a, an interesting parallel of, even though I may have a right, uh, I also have responsibilities. And so there's still, even though, uh, and I find in this story of the, uh, uh, of the cave of Machpelah, the sense that Abraham had a right to be there, had this promise but he also had a responsibility to uh, get along with his neighbors and live together with his neighbors. So he purchases it. Not only that, he probably overpays for it. It seems very clearly, uh, I've often irreverently uh, at times uh, talked about this uh, Torah portion uh, as the first example of uh, uh, price gouging on burials and, <laughs> and funerals, which is universal. You know, it's not just a, it's a universal problem when people are at their uh, most vulnerable points in life when a loved one dies. Uh, how do we, you know, not, not take advantage of them? So Ephraim takes advantage and Abraham says, I just, I want to have a burial spot. I don't want any questions. This is important. That one of the, you know, a, one of the commandments in Judaism is kvod hamet, to honor the dead. Uh, and uh, that's this is a, a prime example of this. Another thing that's really fascinating is its placement, because uh, you know uh, Rashi, the great medieval French commentator, notes uh, this ha this story comes right after the story of the binding of Isaac, which is a much more famous uh, uh, part of uh, the Genesis narrative, the Abraham narrative. And one of the suggestions Rashi makes. Uh, is that when Sarah heard what was going to happen, that Abraham had taken Isaac uh, and they were going to go off for a sacrifice, the shock is what killed her. Abraham comes back, he buries Sarah, he gives her a proper burial, and the fact is, it sets an interesting precedent the, for the Jewish, for, for Judaism over the last 4,000 years. When Jewish communities uh, are formed, when Jews move into an, a new place. The first purchase of land by the community is always a burial spot. Even before you build a synagogue, you can meet, you can pray anywhere. You can pray in somebody's home. You can pray outside. Uh, but we have to have a place uh, where we can show respect and honor uh, to our deceased. 
and uh, and that's a fundamental concept uh, and principle in Judaism uh, of remembering the dead and honoring them uh, and caring for them. So I want to remind our listeners of an interesting uh, dynamic here. Rabbi Borovitz has reminded us on a number of occasions that uh, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah. The cave, um, not a burial plot, because in ancient Judaism, it was uh, standard practice to uh, place the uh, deceased um, covered in a shroud within a cave. And at the appropriate time, the bones and the corpse were then included in a sarcophagus. For those Christian listeners of the story, this should resonate because in the Jesus narrative, after the crucifixion, Jesus's body is removed to a cave. And that would fit within the first century tradition of the Jewish people that the deceased, regardless of how they had perished, um, the bodies are moved with great care and dignity to a cave. It's not for another um, few centuries that Jews begin to inter their deceased um, when living outside the land of Israel and no longer having ownership of land that um, caves per se become um, un- unavailable to them. Um, so we have this story of Sarah uh, being lovingly buried. Um, and Abraham making sure that he purchased the land. And as um, the rabbi has indicated, this pattern of purchasing the land, even though Abraham says, I'm a resident alien here, I have certain rights, and he's offered the land, he says, no, I need to make sure that there's no question about ownership. And this, as the rabbi said, becomes the pattern throughout the late 19th and 20th century, as the land of Israel is developed. Um, But I wanted to, and you've talked about this parallelism between this story and the um, birth of Zionism in the land of Israel, which I know is dear to your heart. Do you think that the early Zionists were motivated by this story? I think it. Uh, I think some of uh, certainly some of the religious Zionists. I am sure that uh, uh, I. I do remember. Can't remember exactly where I read it, but Rav Cook, who was uh, the leader of uh, Orthodox Judaism, he was the he was the chief rabbi uh, of the land of Israel at the time uh, of the uh, the British mandate a hundred years ago. Uh, I'm sure this. Uh, struck with him but i think it it was a practice what what i what i think is this practice carried over in two ways one as far as ensuring a proper burial and the purchase of the land the land of israel because there's two jewish law is concerned with both our relationship with god our individual and communal relationship with god but also our personal and communal relationship with others. 
uh, you know, the, the commandments that govern our interpersonal relationships. And here's a good example of this. So how do how do we how do we find a way to live together in a community uh, and that is heterogeneous? And uh, and but by, by the way, the way Abraham initiates this, and and throughout the Abraham and Isaac stories uh, that uh, go from you know chapter twelve to chapter thirty-five, uh, and uh, of Genesis, we find all sorts of examples of our patriarchs finding a way to live together with others who are residing in the area, and that and it's not easy. And we hear about, you know, the, the tensions and the stresses. We live in a world like that now. Uh, not just in the Middle East and the land of Israel, uh, but here in North America. Uh, it's, it's very hard. It, uh, as uh, I think you Canadians do it a little better than we uh, Americans uh, in the United States. Uh, but the stress and the tensions uh, that we see in our contemporary society uh, between different religious groups, different political groups, uh, this story talks to me. It says that somehow I have to find a way uh, to uh, make the compromises necessary to live together in peace with other people. I don't have to, we don't have to all do everything the same way. We don't have to all have the same pathway to God. Uh, but we all have to find a way to, to work together. Uh, I used to give, when I would do interfaith uh, discussions sometimes, I would talk about the sense that uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism uh, are like the five fingers on my hand. They're all different pathways to one God. And, uh, and, and the fact is, I can't lift up, how much can I lift with one finger? Not very much. Uh, but if I have a whole hand working together, I can lift a lot more. You've offered, you've offered our listeners a really interesting insight about the Abraham narrative. That even though Abraham in Genesis 12 is identified as the progenitor of the Jewish people, Throughout the entire narrative, he is interacting with other people, Hittites, Jebusites, uh, the Edomites, the Egyptians, um, it's, <laughs> the Egyptians good. Um, and our Torah portion ends in a very strange way, um, which may be connected to this uh, um narrative that you're suggesting. So the Torah portion ends with Abraham dying. Um, and I'll read it. Uh, it says, Abraham took another wife, um, and they were all descendants of Keturah. Abraham willed all that he owned to Isaac, but Abraham's sons by concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So he acknowledges all these other offsprings. 
he dies, and his son and um, Ishmael and Isaac buried him on the cave of Machpelah, the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field that he had bought from the Hittites. Um, and then it says, this is the line of Ishmael, and these are the sons of Ishmael, and this is the life of Ishmael. Um, so Ishmael is never forgotten, even though earlier in the narrative, it seems like he is quite marginalized. So does the return of Ishmael represent that which you were speaking about earlier in that the Torah wants to indicate that though God has this unique relationship with the descendants of Abraham, all people are part of the uh, creation? Or is there a greater message here about the return of Ishmael? Well, I think that uh, one, one message uh, is that for Jews, Christians, and Muslims, we're all children of Abraham, that we're all cousins. Uh, which, by the way, I'm sure many of the listeners, uh, like you and, you and I, uh, always don't get along with all of our relatives. There's times when there's conflicts in families. But there's also a bond that binds you to family. And, and here we see, uh, by the fact that they come together to honor their father, uh, there's uh, a sense uh, of mutual respects. We're going to find that uh, parallel in the next generation, two generations later, with the, with Abraham's grandchildren, with Jacob and Esau, who also don't get along so well, uh, but come together again uh, uh, after Jacob's return to the land, and they too bury their father together. So I think that. Uh, there's, to me, one of the things is, you know, when crisis strikes, somehow we can come together. How about coming together before this crisis? How do we come together in life, not just in death? Uh, and I think that uh, that's a message the Bible is, uh, uh, is trying to give us, and one that is uh, extremely uh, salient as well as relevant in the 21st century. Uh, when we live in this multicultural world, uh, how do we respect uh, the fact that every person, we're all descendants, not, not just Muslim, Christians, and Jews, descendants of Abraham, but every human being is a descendant of uh, first Adam and then actually of Noah as well. So how do we uh, recognize our fraternity uh, and work together? and respect each other's right to be different. And you always can't live together with everyone. So sometimes, uh, you know, marriage, which, you know, the, the, le the bulk of this Parsha deals with this whole romantic story, uh, which interestingly is introduced with the first prayer found in the Bible, and it's not said by Abraham, it's said by uh, his servant, who is identified, you know, in Jewish Midrash in commentary as by the name of Eliezer, which means God's help. Uh, so, so how do we go? How do we get together? Right. So for again, for our listeners, the, the story of the uh, Isaac and Rebecca um, 
Abraham is not a central character in that story. His servant is, and tradition gives his servant the name Eliezer. And Eliezer does have a prayer in the story in which he asks for God's help. The servant says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me good fortune this day and deal graciously with my master Abraham. Here I stand by the springs, the daughters of the towns, then come out to draw water. Let the maiden to whom I say, please lower your jar that I may drink, and who replies, drink, and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have decreed for your servant Isaac. Therefore shall I know that you have dealt graciously with my master. So it's Eliezer, this servant, or this nameless servant, this Evid, uh, who offers a prayer asking God for guidance. And what's he wants? He want, he's looking for uh, a wife, with, not who's rich, not who's smart, not who's strong, who's gracious and kind and giving. And ultimately, uh, when we think about what, what is it that we leave as an inheritance in this life? It's not the physical things. It's not the money that we may or may not acquire in our lives. It's the memories we help to create. And what are the memories uh, that we want to pass on to uh, our children and grandchildren? Uh, what, are the, what are the aspects of kindness uh, and, good, and goodness that we want to pass on? Isn't that the most important thing more than, uh, more than power? More, it's not by might and not by power, but by God's spirit, uh, the prophet Ze uh, Zechariah says, uh, that's, uh, that, that's the really important thing. That's, that's our inheritance. And, uh, you know, and this is, I think, another example. I, I believe that the whole book of Genesis in particular, uh, and maybe the whole Torah, is an answer uh, to the question Cain uh, it's an answer to the response Cain gives to God. When Cain says in the opening story of, uh, of Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? And basically all of Torah says, yes, you are. You're, we're all responsible for our brothers and our sisters. So I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Neil Borovitz, uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Temple Avodah Shalom in River Edge, New Jersey. He's helped us unpack two very interesting stories this morning. The first about purchasing land, which turns out to be land in the uh, Holy Land, and what is the power of owning land there, and does it set a paradigm for what happens later as Zionism emerges, and also sharing with us the powerful imagery of what family is all about, not just nuclear family, but the human family. I am Rabbi Stephen Garten, uh, thanking you for listening to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. You can hear a podcast of our show on uh, chri.ca or on iTunes, or now you can see us and our conversation on YouTube. I wish you all shalom and a good day.